The glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days, the gory days. The gory days. Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory lane to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. Kyle Leone here, your host for another week, and what a week it is today. I am delving into one of the cultiest, classicest movies that exists in this horror genre. I can't believe I saw this movie as late as I did, considering what a lover of horror I am. No, no, I can't believe that. I was a scaredy cat as a kid. I was the kind of kid walking in the uh, blockbuster aisles and the Halloween stores looking down and putting up hand blinders so that I wouldn't be scared by the sudden appearance of a Freddy or a Chucky mask with eye holes cut out of it. You know, just like the real thing. Anyway, today I'm talking about The Evil Dead, the Sam Raimi quintessential cult classic from 1981 that put, well, unfortunately, it didn't really put Sam Raimi on the map, but it introduced the world to Sam Raimi, which would later give us, who would later give us movies like Dark Man and the Spider-Man trilogy and Drag Me to Hell. But why don't we get into how this movie got made before I get to the first segment? Or we talk about what happened in the movie. Anyway, in case you don't already know this story, I find it very interesting. Of course, Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell were friends since they were kids. Like, they grew up together and they made a bunch of low-budget Super 8 films, including a comedy called It's Murder! Apparently, they were shooting a suspense scene in It's Murder! Which inspired them to approach the genre of horror. And so, take notes. Because this is how you make it in Hollywood. After researching horror cinema at drive-in theaters, Raimi, Sam Raimi, was set on directing a horror proof-of-concept short film to attract financiers and investors so that they could use those funds to shoot a full-length version. In fact, that's what his plan was. So the short film that Raimi made was called Within the Woods, and you can still find it online, and that was produced for a scant $1,600, $1,600 they put together a short film that generated enough funds to produce the full-length Evil Dead that we know today for about 90 grand. And so to get that money, once again, this is how movies are made, super grassroots. Poor Sam Raimi approached an attorney to one of his friends. And although that attorney wasn't super impressed by the film, he gave him he gave Raimi legal advice on how to get the Evil Dead produced. And that attorney was Phil Gillis. So with his advice, Raimi asked basically everyone he knew, family members, uh, people in Hollywood, everyone in between, anyone he thought might be interested, every individual in town. And eventually, like I said, raised enough money to produce a full-length version of his film with about 90 grand, which is a, a a few tens of thousands of dollars short from the full amount that Sam Raimi initially wanted, which was a little over 100 grand. But they put an ad out for some actors. They scouted the locations themselves. These people didn't know what they were doing. Every, like, sentence I read about how this movie got made is so beautifully, like, grounded and attainable. It really seems like this is something that you and I, if we had a really fun idea, could do (laughs) if we weren't afraid of, like, injuring our friends and um, putting ourselves in some questionable legal trouble. Uh... Anyway, I'm beating around the bush. Let's get to the fact that when the movie was finished, 
it attracted the interest of producer Irvin Shapiro, who ran the Cannes Film Festival at the time. And so he eventually got that to screen at the 1982 Cannes Film Festival, where Stephen King was happened to be in attendance. Stephen King saw The Evil Dead, wrote an amazing review for the film, which got New Line Cinema's attention to uh, acquire the distribution rights. And New Line Cinema wrote a uh, check big enough for Sam Raimi to pay off all of his investors. And goddamn, man, if that's if that's not a dream come true, I don't know who is. I mean, it was kind of a sleeper hit, so it's not like, oh, we made this amazing movie and now we're millionaires and we're on the map. In fact, he kind of, Sam Raimi, after this movie, made another movie, I, I forget the name of it, but that was a massive flop and in fact, almost killed his career. He decided, Sam Raimi decided to make Evil Dead 2 immediately after that fiasco, uh, kind of just like as a move of desperation to save his career. So that's how Evil Dead got made. And like I said, it spawned a legacy, including not just uh, a sequel in Evil Dead 2, but two sequels, Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness. And so this is what was confusing to me as a kid, uh, vaguely familiar of movie horror movie franchises as I would see them at Blockbuster, is that the first two movies are Evil Dead, and then the third movie is Army of Darkness, and it doesn't have the word Evil Dead in it anywhere. And I remember seeing like the box art for Evil Dead, which if, if you're familiar, it's like a skull, but the skull has like eyeballs in it. It looks like Bruce Campbell's eyes, and he's kind of looking at you. There's also the one where it's like blue and it's a zombie person, like woman reaching up. The only one I had seen at the blockbuster stores was the skull one with the eyes. And then Evil Dead 2, the box art, had the same thing going on. So it was it was confusing to me because I thought Evil Dead, I was like, is this related to Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead? Is that one big franchise? And it got more confusing as I kept seeing Ash or at least like those... Uh, like archetypes in uh, cartoon shows that I would watch. Like uh, specifically the one that comes to mind is uh, the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy had a recurring character named Haas Delgado. That was very much a combination of Ash from this movie and um, Kurt Russell's character from Escape from New York uh, and uh, Escape from L.A. I forget his character's name in those movies, but... Yeah, I would see this guy with a chainsaw for a hand and a shotgun in the other one, and I would have no idea what it was, and I would see video games for it. Like, uh, there was those trio of games, Evil Dead, Hail to the King, Evil Dead, A Fistful of Boomstick, and Evil Dead Regeneration. I would see those in the same places, Blockbuster, but over in the video game section. And so it was just this very confusing time for me. I didn't really, like put a lot of stock into the Evil Dead franchise, and it's even weird to call it a franchise. The Evil Dead franchise is three movies that make up the, like, primary canon. Then you've got the 2013 Evil Dead reboot, which is amazing. If you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it, even if you haven't seen the original, but you'll definitely appreciate the 2013 remake or reboot or whatever way more if you've seen the original. Man, I should do that on this podcast sometime. Um, and then finally, there was the uh, TV show, uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead, on Stars in 2015. I remember watching like the first two or three episodes of that and not really caring, not really getting that connected. But <laughs> to tell you the truth, after watching um, Evil Dead like two or three times for this uh, episode and doing my research... It's really fascinating how they've kind of uh, retroactively connected all of the dots in both 
the movies and also the comic books. There was a, a run of Army of Darkness that started in 1992, but I'm pretty sure has been running like even to this day. Uh, <laughs> there was even one where he saved Barack Obama. Um, but uh, this this like co- uh, going back and weaving together like Kandar and who Knowles was that owned the Necronomicon and all of this stuff makes me want to go <laughs> and actually watch that show because it ties together all of the movies apparently. Um, Army of Darkness being the most confusing one to me. Uh, we're, we're not doing Army of Darkness today. Anyway. Oh, the last thing I'll say about the uh, Evil Dead franchise is that in addition to its own comic, it's also spun off into a comic that was called Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash, which uh, had a run in 2007 and then a second run, a sequel kind of, if you will. Um, I think it was 2013. I don't have that date here. But in it, they uh, it was Ash joining a support group where everyone in the support group were survivors from previous films of Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. And they were coming together to in the support group to support each other, but also to figure out a way to kill and once and for all get rid of both Freddy and Jason. And so... I thought that idea was so cool of going through their entire filmographies, picking the survivors and putting together an all-stars like Avengers team to go fight them. It made me want to go pick up that uh, comic book issue. So anyway, let's get into the movie that I've talked so much about already with my first segment that I love so much. What the hell just happened? So in a nutshell, Evil Dead tells the story of five Michigan State University students. Ash, Ashley, the man, I I know, Ash Williams, his girlfriend, Linda, Ash's sister, Cheryl, their friend, Scott, and his girlfriend, Scott's girlfriend, Shelly. So that's Ash, Linda, Cheryl, Scott, and (laughs) Shelly. I got a bad feeling about these people. Um, So these five Michigan State University students are vacationing at an isolated cabin in rural Tennessee. They got like some weird, really good deal on this cabin, and they're just going to go up there and have sex with each other. Oops, except for Linda, who's just going to hang out in the living room, I guess. It's the weirdest thing. Like, hey, sis, do you want to hang out with me, my girlfriend, my bro, and his girlfriend? up at a cabin for a weekend or I don't know how long they were supposed to be here, but uh, no, no, I think I'll pass Ash. Thanks. (laughs) Um, No, she's the fifth wheel and she comes along. And anyway, here's the deal. The owner of the cabin who doesn't get a name in the movie, but apparently in the like expanded canons name is uh, his last name is Noby. This man retreated to this cabin with his wife to study his findings from excavating the ruins of Kandar wherever that is, the Kandarian ruins. Specifically, he found a volume of ancient Sumerian burial practices and funerary incantations. Its title, the Naturom Demonto, a.k.a. Book of the Dead. So it's the Necronomicon. I don't know. I've had this weird thing in my head. Maybe they say it in Evil Dead 2. (laughs) That's part of the problem. I had to watch Evil Dead multiple times to cement what happens in this movie versus what happens in Evil Dead 2 because it's very easy to mix the events together. They're basically the same movie. I'm going to do Evil Dead 2 at some point, and it'll be a really short episode because it's the same stuff. 
But um, so the book outright says the 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 Necronomicon, the Naturum Demonto, the Book of the Dead says that the incantations grant demons and evil spirits free reign to possess the living. <laughs> and then he just reads them. <laughs> like, like if he had any kind of reverence even to what he was uh, going through, like, oh, this is, uh, this is ancient, respectful burial practices and funerary incantations. I should probably be, I probably shouldn't just like barrel my way through them like a third grader learning French. But here I go. And sure enough, the owner's wife became possessed, I assume instantly, by a Kandarian demon, Kandarian demon, whatever. So he dismembered her. He figured out that that's how you destroy the demons is through dismemberment. You have to remove all their arms and legs and head. And um, then the demon came for him, or demons, or evil spirits. So the same demon or demons heard the incantations that uh, Ash and his friends play. They go down to the basement and they find the tape from this guy and they play it. So the demons hear the incantations they wake up again to kill the teens one by one until they're all dead. And I guess, oh, well, it ends with Ash surviving. He survives the end of the night. Or does he? As the monster swooshes through the cabin for one last scare. God, I love that Raimi cam. I really do. So so that's what happened. Why don't we go through some of these uh, thoughts that I had that came up through this movie. So it's funny, going into the movie and even like the first several scenes, I would not believe you if you told me that this was a dark comedy. If going into this you said, do you want to watch a funny horror? Let's watch The Evil Dead. No, when I think of a funny horror, I think of Tucker and Dale versus Evil or... Well, I really talked myself into a corner here. That was the only one I had in my head. Why did I, why did I even start saying that like it was going to be a list? <laughs> Anyway, if you told me this movie was a dark comedy before I saw it, I wouldn't have believed you. But sure enough, there's a lot of just straight-up funny moments that uh, I, I picked out here. Some of my favorites <laughs> that uh, are reoccurring, at least. There's a few moments where Ash is uh, attacking the Deadites, which they never refer to them as Deadites. And I'm only saying that because I know that's what they're called in the greater franchise mythology or whatever, but they never say that in the movie. So these are... Uh, uh, deadites and as ash is fighting them several times i think at least three times ash gets backhanded by one of them like um one of them will be attacking at one point i think linda is on top of scott and like trying to strangle him ash comes over and linda backhands him he goes flying like across the room hits a like bookcase he falls, and then the bookcase falls on him. That happens at least three times, and each time it's really funny. And I'm, I am so curious how people are, like, it's obvious when I'm watching it afterward that, okay, that's really funny. But if you're like, okay, this is the scene where he's getting strangled and they're screaming and stuff, and so I want you to kind of, like, fly backwards, but do it a little silly. And it's like, what? Oh, just trust me. It'll be, it'll be scary and funny. Like that kind of command that Sam Raimi has over the dance between horror and comedy where something actively scary is happening, but something about either the length that it's happening or the noise that it's making <laughs> becomes funny. It's really, really interesting. I applaud this movie and uh, frankly, all of Sam Raimi's movies. If you haven't seen Dark Man <laughs> with Liam Neeson, that's up there for uh, a Sam Raimi dark comedy. Um, but let's see other moments like when, uh, 
Linda's getting pulled out of, or no, I think it's Shelly. When Shelly's getting pulled out of the fireplace, she's like, thank you. I don't know what I would have done if I had remained on those hot coals burning my pretty flesh. <laughs> like, I always think of demons as being just inherently serious and really scary and just ripping things apart. Like, you think of the exorcist, and I guess, like, you know, you with the with the beauty of time, you can look at some of those lines and thinking, oh, yeah, that's pretty funny when she's like, your mother sucks cocks in hell and stuff like that. But I, I wonder if this comes from some other, like, biblical place. I can't think it's a Sam Raimi invention himself, but the idea of demons being, like... Um, like roast comics, like making fun of you and uh, using the like possessed person's memories against you to like uh, bring up past slights or to um, heighten things that uh, a person never would have said ordinarily and stuff like that. He, Sam Raimi makes the deadites really fucking like annoying in an evil conniving way. <laughs> uh, I'd liken them to the gremlins if they weren't so instantly viscerally violent that first pencil stab into linda's leg oh my god that's one of those things like i said a second ago the pencil stab is bad but it's how long the deadite is digging in it's like digging around <laughs> and she's just screaming at every i can only imagine everyone just kind of looking at it happening going like whoa oh wow she's being stabbed uh-oh she's still being stabbed I hope this ends soon. Um, yeah, like how long it takes Shelly to die from the ceremonial knife stab and how over the top it is <laughs> as Ash and Scott just kind of stand there and watch for it to end. Only for it to not work. Like that whole sequence is just her waiting to go like, surprise, it didn't work after all. Ha ha ha. And uh, I want to make sure that I point this out at some point because it's my favorite element and it feels... It's hard to put into words, but this setting of the cabin and even the way the furniture is set where you have like the couch on one side and a bookcase, a couple of bookcases here and there, and a cellar in that corner is so like bizarrely perfect. It feels like that's how the cabins should always be. But I always have to take a step back and remind myself that Sam Raimi and crew were creating these things they were creating these like new tropes that movies for years and years and years would be taking for a given like oh it's a horror movie of course there'll be a cabin in the woods look at cabin in the woods so every moment that cheryl as a deadite deadite cheryl is like in the cellar mocking the characters and just like generally (laughs) causing a ruckus like shaking the chain and shouting and rattling the door and all that causes so much chaos in the scene it makes it feel so uneasy and it just feels so obvious like that's how it always should have been so yeah i feel like i'm just gonna be giving big props uh to to sam raimi this whole time (laughs) including the big slaps that ash gives to linda like how could anyone think those are any i mean nobody does they're those are the moments that are obviously very funny where ash where Ash stands in front of Linda, Linda's in front of the camera so that he can slap her really hard, you know, like a stage slap without actually hitting her. But <laughs> he's going so hard, those big slaps, and nothing's happening. It's not working. Um, I love when Cheryl's demon uses her normal voice to try to fool, <laughs> to try to fool him. Um, and then Linda does the same with her normal 
oh, it's, it's, it's too far. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Linda goes first. Um, and then Cheryl uses her normal voice. I love that. Let's try that again. I love when Cheryl's demon is using her normal voice to try to fool Ash after Linda does the same thing with her normal face. Like, like I'm here in the audience watching this movie, and it's like, they're clearly fucking with him. It's like, oh, Ash, I'm all better now. It's such a tricky demon thing to do. I love it. Um, it's, it's kind of funny, but the more I think about it, it's just straight up dark when Ash is giving a very, very dead Scott, uh, a drink of water and like a pep talk, like, hey, don't worry, we're going to get out of here. It's going to be fine. You, me, Cheryl. Well, maybe not Cheryl. Um, she's dead. <laughs> and then it's even funnier when he knocks Scott like off the couch when he gets thrown over there. Um, the multiple tree bonks to Linda as she laughs and smiles as uh, Bruce Campbell just goes all out. The extreme close-up game where it's like, because the first time they do it, they do these extreme close-ups on Linda's, I mean, um, yeah, on Linda's and Ash's eyes as they're doing the like, oh, is, is, is he asleep? Does she know I'm asleep? It's fun when they do the callback later between Ash and Linda when Linda's dead and he's burying her. There's a couple like little moments like that that really tie this movie all together. But man, <laughs> and then of course the, the, the ending credits music. That's all, folks. That's what it sounds like. Uh, I gotta say, it is so interesting. It feels the movie was uh, released in 1981, so naturally it was filmed before then, um, between 78 and 79. So it feels older than an 80s movie, just because of its like film grain and the sound quality, but it also feels timeless. And I feel like that's like, I wonder if that's Sam Raimi leaning into the low budget independent nature of this or just like to make up for it, to hide it because it just, it fits so perfectly. Oh, I'd like to give a shout out to the um, not Necronomicon itself, the um, whatever it's called. That's a high quality prop. God damn, like the flesh that, or whatever that's made to look like flesh on the outside of the book, the text, like the weird script that they invented for the Sumerians or whatever. Oh, wait, was that was that Sumerian? It didn't even occur to me. I assumed it was this uh, invented script that the uh, uh, art director would have had to create. Oh, well, either way, it's it's supposed to be made out of skin and it's so gross and it looks great. And even at the end, I love that moment there's this spyglass uh, that, that that pops up a few times. And I love that moment at the end where he's getting, where Ash is on the ground and he's getting his leg grabbed and he's getting beaten in the lower back with a fire poker instead of stabbed. I don't know why she's not stabbing him, whatever. And he's using the spyglass to throw and try to get a grip around the Necronomicon. And we think he hasn't done it and he gets pulled out of frame by the deadites. But then, it's caught on the spyglass. I love that moment. That's that's so good. Honestly, it's one of the nicer thematic devices, and I don't want to get ahead of myself uh, into my next segment, so I'll just mention the tree rape. So, <laughs> so this movie got an X rating when it came out because Sam Raimi was basically he threw the rule he threw the book out as far as censorship and stuff. He had no intent on censoring anything in the movie. He wanted to make something truly shocking, and. I personally cannot think of 
anything more shocking than a full-on uh, tree rape. And I think I know. I think you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen the movie. There is an extended sequence. It's, in fact, one of the first, like, big scares. Cheryl's already gotten her hand possessed, and so that was a little creepy. And we heard the story, uh, or we heard the tape and the incantations, and so that was creepy. But when Cheryl goes out into the woods because she's convinced she's hurt somebody, what the fuck, what was her plan? Is she going to, like, tell them, cut it out? She follows who she thinks is a prankster so far into the woods in her robe. Anyway. It is scary as shit. It really is. And it sets a horrifically sexual bar for the movie and for all the horror that ultimately and thankfully doesn't continue. I, I <sighs> There have been movies that, you know, are like, oh, it's the most banned movie in the world or whatever. And the one, the one that I always think of is Cannibal Holocaust. And... I have not finished Cannibal Holocaust, and I don't think I ever will, because as a lover of horror, there's an element of visual uh, agony that I wish I enjoyed, and maybe if I did enjoy at some point, something bizarre is happening as I get older. <laughs> I'm telling you people, as I get older, these movies that I used to love, like Hostel and Saw, it's harder and harder to enjoy the visceral, nasty, gory parts. And I look back on myself with a little bit of derision of like, why did you like that stuff? Uh, it's funny. It's like, I wasn't desensitized. I just, I'm, I wasn't desensitized. I, I'm becoming desensitized the older I get. <laughs> or I'm becoming more sensitized, I guess. Um, anyway, let me, let me just say that. The, it really feels like you're doubting whether or not it's going to happen until it actually does, when she's getting strung up by the tree, and then it's like wrapping around her breasts, and then it starts pulling apart her legs, and the whole time you're like, is, is, this, is this really what's, what's happening? And it's just awful. But I am very proud of Cheryl for getting away completely on her own. It's not like Ash or Scott ran in to save her. She, she ripped the vines off all by herself and escaped a rape with her life. Unfortunately, she got turned into a deadite from that experience, but what are you going to do? Um, yeah, I just feel like I needed to mention that because you can't talk about this movie without that. They even included it in the 2013 reboot, and it's just as uncomfortable. And it's even referenced in um, Cabin in the Woods. There's a tree that uh, during the purge scene, you know, where they hit the big red button, one of the trees is um, like fingering uh, one of the people to death as it catches him. It's, it's pretty gross. Uh, I love the way the bridge is ripped up. So cool, so scary, because it like makes no sense how anyone could have done it, and I love it, and it kind of looks like an upturned claw. Um, and God, man, the horror of watching your friend get possessed and like become a monster, and watch them start becoming a monster. Like the idea that your friend's body is being destroyed by this demon who's like having a blast doing it is pretty is pretty scary the way they do it too as as you know as silly as it is oh the stop motion effect of linda's foot wound will always and forever haunt me the way that when ash comes in to look at her pencil foot wound and the stop motion of it like spreading and then the shot of her like opening her eyes where they removed a frame or something oh my god it's beautiful it's beautiful. I love those. I love those Raimi inserts as uh, Ash gets ready to <laughs> contemplate chainsawing Linda. 
Also, nice, brand new chainsaw at this uh, ancient old cabin, whatever. Uh, oh, the mirror, the mirror that turns into water gets me every time, and his scream it sells it so good. <laughs> and I always forget about the hands that burst out when the Deadites are dying at the very end, once they're, like, melting, the hands that shoot out of their bodies that look like it's, like, the, the Deadites grasping onto their last, like, vestige of these possessed bodies is so great. Anyway, let's get to the next segment where I ask all of my questions called Mystery LLC. My first question is, is this all one demon or are there a great many evil forces in the woods? Like, are the trees evil or were they possessed by the demon? Is the whole woods evil or was it one demon that was going around creating all of this madness? Or was it several demons? It seems to me that it would be several demons, the way that, you know, all the Deadites kind of have different personalities, I guess. Gosh, now that I think about it, they kind of don't. They kind of all have the same personality where they're laughing and stuff. But it's not like they ever talk at the same time, which would imply any kind of hive mind or whatever. I'm just curious. They don't answer it. I'm wondering if they answer it in um, Ash versus Evil Dead. Uh, they probably do. They probably give a name to the, the fucking demon. <laughs> um, so where is the Kandarian region, Kandar? And how did a demon from there end up in Tennessee just by bringing the book and reading the incantations? The way that the, the um, tape makes it sound is that these... That, that the, the region is where, you know, all these horrible things would have happened and there would have been all of this uh, uh, evidence of, like, a, a society that collapsed under some horrible event. And bringing the book with you and reading the things, you know, it, it's a movie. So I'm not... This is always a facetious segment where I ask my questions, but I'm curious. And I'm sure, once again, that Ash versus Evil Dead <laughs> shows us where that is and maybe even shows us, like, how it got started. Um... So burning the book did nothing when Ash throws the Necronomicon into the fire and the zombie or the deadites melt away via amazing stop motion. Absolutely incredible stop motion. I freaking love the stop motion when they start melting. But apparently burning the book didn't do anything because when Ash is outside and we're all meant to think like everything worked out, that final money shot is the camera whooshing through the woods, smashing through the cabin and getting Ash before, you know, it smashes the credits. So I guess it didn't do anything. And it's really confusing because the sequel is essentially this same movie. And Army of Darkness takes place, like, in the past. So it's hard to say if any of this worked without watching the TV show. Um, oh, well. <laughs> Let's get on to my final segment, which I call Screaming Themies. So the one that I want to start with is the one that I mentioned earlier, which is the Spyglass Necklace. The Spyglass Necklace is a gift that Ash was going to give his girlfriend, Linda, ideally before this cabin trip, but he says that this was the only time they, they had a chance to be alone together. And so he gives her this little spyglass, like, necklace thing, and I don't know the significance of it being a spyglass. I was trying to, like... It's a magnifying glass, you know, not spyglass. I guess spyglass is like a telescope, kind of. It, it's um, a magnifying glass. It's a teeny-tiny magnifying glass. And I tried to think. I was like, is it about, like... 
is it like a lens of truth thing? Like, oh, as long as you have this, you'll always be able to see the truth? Or is it just... is? My takeaway is that it simply represents Ash's grasp on his humanity and Linda, or I guess the concept of his love for Linda, because Linda's gone. And, then, and even after he's like, oh, maybe I should chop her up and stuff, he's still looking at the spyglass. And that's like his, that's our symbol that Ash is still retaining some semblance of his sanity. And in fact, when he can't reach the Book of the Dead to deliver the killing blow, he uses it. He uses his, you know, he uses the representation of his humanity to extend his grasp to save the day. And it's that like extension of his last act using the one piece of his humanity left that uh, saves the day at the end. And he holds it as he welcomes the dawn. And it's like, ah, he made it. And if he had lost that one piece of himself, then he would have become a deadite just like the rest of them. But then, oops, it doesn't even matter. (laughs) Uh, There's also the theme, obviously, of like, leaving sleeping dogs lie of aka don't read the necronomicon i'm sure you can read it in your head but do not under any circumstances say the words on the page i don't care how curious you are (laughs) um but yeah the idea of just if you see a creepy thing and it seems like the creepy thing might cause more problems. You should probably just leave it alone and go upstairs and have sex. Don't listen to the tape anymore. Don't do any of that. Even if I, I guess this is kind of a thing for my last second of mystery LLC, but it's, I guess the demon was already kind of floating around the forest area. Cause it influences the steering wheel at the beginning. It almost crashes them into a, a truck head on and it ripped up the uh, bridge. Well, I guess that happened afterwards. But the point is, oh, it says join us to Cheryl, and it controls her hand to draw the Necronomicon. Like, there's little things that imply that they they should have left a long time ago. The swing that magically stops as soon as he finds the keys. Yeah. And that kind of, you know, goes in part part and parcel with demons and possession, which is, which is its own theme. But I don't, I don't know there's much to discuss there. Demons. Demons possess. Don't get possessed. Uh, isolation. They're, like, it's confusing. They're not on an island, but there's only one bridge in and out of wherever they are. And I guess that makes sense because they're surrounded by, like, super dense forest on all other sides. But... Um, yeah, the theme of isolation, of not being able to leave when um, Cheryl has her breakdown of they're not, it's not going to let us leave, it's not going to let us leave. Like, that really hits home. Survival at all costs, obviously, is a big theme here as Ash has to, like, face his own insanity multiple times. Uh, and then madness, of course, you know, those are the same theme, basically. Honestly, I highly recommend this movie to any fan of horror movie. I I wouldn't say all horror, because if you have a taste for modern horror, like, um, you know, horrors made in the 2010s, there's this weird, I'm, uh, it's a generalization, but there's this weird obsession with there being a mystery to the horror in modern horror movies. This is my opinion, and I've noticed this trend with horror movies having an extra element of mystery that the main characters um, need to solve. Whether or not they're actually going to solve it or not, that's the drive. It's not enough that something scary is happening and they have to survive. It's They have to figure out why it's happening and maybe even help the thing uh, move on. <laughs> I'm looking at you, The Ring. I feel like that's kind of what started... Uh, eh, I'm not going to make any uh, historical... Uh, gleanings, but this movie is firmly satisfied with 
not answering anything. It's just content with saying, here are some teens in a cabin. <laughs> They're probably going to die. Let's watch. We don't need to figure out, oh, who are the Deadites? What is the book? Where did the Necronomicon come from? Basically all the questions that I'm asking <laughs> at the end, this movie doesn't care. And so with that, why don't I rate it on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best. I got to give this movie five thumbs. I really do. I really do. There's no point where I want to skip or fast forward. The, the, the beats are really good. It's like, I think it's about like, 35 minutes in that we see Cheryl first turn as she's like predicting the, the cards on um, uh, they're doing like an ESP game where she has to guess what's on the other side of cards that she can't see. That sequence is so cool. Honestly, just from the low budget feel that somehow affects an air of timelessness combined with just the over-the-top antics from the gore to the screaming to the just unending blood pouring from Cheryl's or from Linda's neck, that hole onto him, to the comedy. Like, it's got everything in it, and it's so perfect for, like, when I first saw this, the first time I saw this, my friend was like, have you seen Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2? And I was like, no. And he said, okay, good. We can watch them. We can watch them both because they're the same movie. And he, I remember Mike, Mike Lopez, he sat us down in, um, uh, was it Brian's dorm room? Yeah, at UCSB. And we watched Evil Dead. And then I don't remember if we marathon like straight into Evil Dead 2, but I remember back then being like, holy crap. <laughs> Where has this movie been? That's what Evil Dead is? I am way into this. So yeah, five stars. Um, and let's see. I've only got five actors, so I'm going to award all five of my thumbs. Uh, did I say stars earlier? Jeez, what a gaff. I'm going to award all five of my thumbs. Unfortunately, none are going to Sam Raimi. None are going to Robert Tapper, the producer, or the prosthetic makeup effects and stop motion animator, Tom Sullivan. I'm sorry. Instead, I'm going to give them to the actors. So I'm going to give one thumb to Teresa Tilly, who played Shelly. I'm going to give one to Betsy Baker, who played Linda. I got to give one to Richard Demandencore, who played Scott or Scotty, who's just such a dick. I also got to give one to Ellen Sandwise as Cheryl. And then, of course, the guy who ushered in Ash himself and a bunch of other big-chinned heroes. <laughs> I got to give one big thumb to Bruce Campbell. He is—he makes this movie. And it's so funny how young he is and skinny he is when you've seen him as he is now. He's like this giant man with this big chiseled chin. And the I always picture him with those uh, white sideburns from Bubba Hotep. But um, I wish I could give one to you, Sam. I wish I could, but you don't need it. You're still on top of the world. And that's the Evil Dead. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Gory Days. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at The Gory Days. And you can shoot me an email. Let me know what you're up to. Or, heck, if you want to be a guest on my show, send me an email to thegorydayspodcast at gmail.com. And finally, I want to give a quick shout out to a podcast that premiered a couple weeks ago. It's called The Martian Broadcast. It is a radio play within a radio play that tells the story of the week leading up to the Orson Welles radio broadcast, War of the Worlds, that rocked 
God, Americans, and caused massive panic. You should definitely check that out wherever you're listening to this podcast, The Martian Broadcast. Otherwise, tune in next week when I'll have another episode of The Gory Days for, uh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. Is that the Halloween episode? I hope not. (laughs) Until next time, stay scary out there. The Gory Days.